Welcome to Jurassic Park. Imagine if James Brown was in Fight Club. Like, actually, like... He's one of the boxers. Yeah. <laughs> Get up off of that thing <laughs> and fight till you feel better. I think he should be. He should be. Hello and welcome to our podcast. Hello. Dude, wow. we're back. It's been a bit. We never left. We never left. Except for last week when we left. We did leave, yeah. Hope everybody had a wonderful Valentine's Day. Aw. Did love, you... Love is in the air. Did you do anything special? Neither did we. Good. I and got I was, cookies. Oh. Well, I, I bought cookies for my wife. Nice. We we exchanged nothing. That's good. Yeah. And uh, it was great. Aw. It's good. For for us, like Valentine's Day is for the kids. Yeah. It's like, eh, you get them a little something. Yeah, we yeah, we got them a little something. A book. Mm. Some Valentine's Day clothes. Henrik loved it. He brought Valentine's to all his kids in class. It was he they got, still do that? Yeah, they got a whole bag. He got a whole bag of Valentine's to come home on the bus, candy. They do. So they still do candy and everything? They still do candy. Yeah, and, ev- I and everything. Like they, I feel like they stopped doing that in the kids' school, but I could just be thinking about COVID times. Hmm. Yeah, it's changed a lot. It's back and in full force. Ah. Ah. Microphone oh. just attacked me. <laughs> Jeez. Easy there. He, he's missed you. Counterbalance. He missed you. That's all. Ah. Uh, that's good. Did you have a nice uh, weekend? Yeah. It's a long weekend. It was. It was a long weekend. Worked a little bit. Oh. Because I had to go in and film. Oh, how was that? It was good. It actually it went pretty well. Got better good. stuff today than we did on Saturday. You were there today? I was. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Nice. Um, But compared to like the actual like full day overnight's worth of work that yeah. people are doing since like Thursday right. to Tuesday. I'm not complaining. Right. No, no, nobody's complaining. So I'm definitely not. Did you guys do anything fun? I, I think you, uh, you went to the zoo, right? We went to the zoo Some today. Family zoo trip. We went to the zoo today. Uh, yeah. Henrik's birthday was today. Happy birthday, Henrik. He says, thank you from his bed. Um, yeah, we went to the zoo. We went to unlikely story in mm, Plainville, mm-hmm. picked out a birthday book. Yeah, for those uh, that are unfamiliar with un- with unlikely an unlikely story, it's a bookstore that I believe was opened by the author of the Diary of a Wimpy Kid, right? Jeff Kinney. Yeah, yeah, right in Plainville. Beautiful store. He's done a lot of good things for that town, um, namely refaced it and made it look nice. Um, but yeah, then we went to the zoo after that. Ran into uh, a mutual. Uh, almost friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like I found out with him twice. I think I can call him almost a friend, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so that was interesting to see somebody that I knew at the zoo and that you know too. I do. Wow. It's very cool. The lions were roaring today like crazy. Yeah? Yeah. That's fun. That was cool. We heard it from before we got into the zoo. Um, Yeah. You know who else was roaring? Who's that? On February 25th, 1993. Oh, we're just, wow. I'm there. What happened in music history, Stephen? Oh, so on February 24th, 1995, did I say three? You did. It's five. Uh, Frank Sinatra performed his final concert at Palm Springs 
Marriott. Palm Springs. Marriott. At a Marriott. Yeah, but I feel like the Palm Springs Marriott was nice. Although by the 90s, maybe not. Because Palm Springs was a big deal in like the 60s and 70s, right? Oh, yeah. And then I think it... I think it's a little time capsule-ish. Like... Really? Like the hotels and like... Because I think that there were plans to turn Palm Springs into almost like a... Like another Vegas. Where it's in the desert. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to build up around it. But it never really got to that. So I think it's still like a relatively like small... Like vacation destination. Yeah. But... It's like going back in time when you go there. I like that. So if, I like places like that. So it's like, yeah, it's a Marriott, but it's not like the Marriott at the airport. It's like, Ooh, it's like, like a nice, it's like a nice swanky. One. Although I heard oh. that um, Walt Disney, that they're building, I think they like bought Palm Springs. The whole thing. And they're building this like massive community there and you can like sign up to go live it's basically like the vision of Epcot, like actually come to life. Are you familiar with the history of Epcot? I mean, the history? Yeah. N- no. Ex- but experimental prototype, uh, something community of tomorrow or something like oh, that. Yeah. I'm getting it wrong. But basically it was like Walt Disney's vision of like what a self-sustaining community could look like. Self-sustaining scallop farm. Say that. Self-sustaining scallop farm. Yeah, say that 10 times fast. But I think that they're actually building it in Epcot. And people who live there are called, like they're going to call people cast members, which is what they call people who work. That just live in Palm Springs? Yeah. No. So it's like. I don't like that. But it's, the whole thing is like your whole, it's like very Truman Show, which have you seen that? Yes. Okay. Like. Like I, it's know, like, I don't like it. It's a planned community in more ways than one. No, it's, it's not. Very, no, very creepy. No, thank you. I won't have it. I'm all set. <laughs> and um, and more so, no. So he performed his last concert there. Oh yes, in '95 at a, at a golf tournament. That was the last like planned concert for Frank Sinatra. Interesting. In 1995. So did he have unplanned concerts after that? Well, he had like one other show. He like appeared Mm. on a late night thing a couple of times and had impromptu kind of shows, but they weren't like an advertised official concert. Um, So a couple more appearances, but that was about it. Um, Do you want to hear something else? I would love to hear something else. Okay. (laughs) Inflection. Um, <laughs> now it is time to talk about this. Yeah, I I would now like to say things. Uh, Rupert Holmes. This I just I only say this because I like this song. Okay. Rupert Holmes. You um is I no I wasn't going to ask you that. Rupert Holmes was born on February twenty fourth, nineteen forty seven. Okay. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, and let's see if you know who Rupert Holmes is. Okay. Do you like pina coladas? Getting caught in the rain? Do you like getting caught in the rain? That was what I was going to ask you, and then I couldn't think of if anything else. If you're not into health food. Yeah. A one-hit wonder, Rupert Holmes. That's what I'm saying. Interesting. February 24th, 1947. So he did pina coladas. Pina coladas. The, the pina colada song. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, like, it's crazy. It turns out it was his wife the whole time. Ah! 
Wow. He walked into a bar. It was his own lovely lady. Yeah. She smiled. It's you. <laughs> <laughs> like, is it good or bad? I think it's good. Because, like, uh, shouldn't you know after that long of being married, like, that your wife likes pina coladas and getting lost in the rain? Caught in the rain? It's getting lost. <laughs> Help. Ah. I'm in the rain. I don't know. How do I get out of this rain? I had too many pina coladas. You just, you just walk. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. It, okay. I I don't care. Okay. Good. <laughs> Great. That's so good. I love when you say things. Listen, um, also, on February 25th, 2015, mm-hmm. so a mere eight years ago. Indeed. I don't, like, I like this. It's important for me to tell you this fact in music history, um, but I just want to tell everybody that I don't love it up front for reasons to be determined in a minute. So I'm going to tell you a couple things. A new tree was planted on February 25th, 2015 in Griffith Park, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Okay. To replace a tree that was earlier killed by beetles. Okay. Oh, can we get this tree out of here? Right. So the tree was killed by beetles in California. And so what they decided to do was on what would have been George Harrison's 72nd birthday. They planted a new tree in honor of George Harrison because the tree was killed by beetles. Beetles. Like, why? Why did you do that? I mean, you just described why. Yeah, but but isn't it great? (laughs) Terrible at the same time? Great's a word. I don't like it, but I loved it because I wrote it down and I told you about it. I have one more fact. Okay. And then I have a question for you. But pause. Do you have any facts or no? I do, but like, I, I'll go last. Like, I'll after your last fact, I have a few facts. Okay. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. That's good. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, Griffith Park. Do I need... Oh. Real quick about Griffith Park. So there's the Griffith Park Observatory... I think that's what it is. Could be wrong on that. There's an observatory in California, in Los Angeles, that's constantly in movies. Really? Yeah, it's in a ton of movies. The uh, The Rocketeer, the final scene, takes place there. I think it's the Griffith Park Observatory. I could be wrong on that. But Griffith Park is a classic B-movie filming location because you don't need a permit to film there. So there are countless science fiction movies specifically that will start with like, Oh, there's a scene on a spaceship and you can tell that they put money into the production design and everything, but then they like, that's all their budget. So 90% of the movie is just people wandering around in the woods. And more often than not, it's at Griffith park. So like if you're ever watching like a made for TV movie, they do it in TV shows all the time. Where it's like, oh, somebody's lost in the woods. It's like, we just need a cheap place to film. Griffith Park. Griffith Park. Wow. And I'm looking, it is Griffith Park Observatory, by the way. Yep. It's in a ton of movies. Oh, yeah. 
It was in, I, I just uh, sang the Terminator theme a little bit. It's in a couple of the Terminator remakes. That's crazy. Yep. It's also like, I'm pretty sure in Grand Theft Auto. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. San Andreas, not Los Angeles. Well, yeah, but I mean, yeah. we all know. Yeah. Um, cool. You know a lot of stuff about just stuff. Just stuff. Which I like. Yeah. All right. February 27th. Mm-hmm. 1993. Whitney Houston's version of I Will Always Love You. Right? <laughs> I've got a video for you. You have a video for me? Perfect. Um, Became the longest number one hit to date. Breaking a record that was held by Boys to Men's End of the Road. It spent 14 weeks at the top of the 100, Billboard 100 list. And became one of the like best-selling songs ever, obviously. Um, but she recorded it for her film debut in *The Bodyguard*. So, so yeah, that was a an original song for the movie, right? It was a song for the movie. Yes. Was she was that a cover? We Dolly talked Parton. about this. Yeah, it was, it was Dolly cover. Parton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was yeah. a cover. Um, so she she remade the song, kind of. Yep. And recorded it for the movie, The Bodyguard. Indeed. <laughs> How do I share my screen onto your TV? Let's see here. Uh, screen mirroring. Oh. Uh, is this the, the Samsung? That's the Samsung. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully this comes through okay. I'll put this on Instagram. Hold on, I need to make it so the audio goes into the uh, into the computer and help computer into the recorder. Um, oh, gosh. oh, you're gonna we're gonna keep this in? Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're not showing the video. No, that's good. Highly offended. Oh my gosh! I, that's why I had to make sure I was streaming to the right TV in your house. Yes. <laughs> hey, Kristen. Whoops. Hey, how you doing? Um, oh boy. Oh, that uh, was rich. Uh. Anyways, that's fun. Oh my gosh, that was great. Is that your um? Is that your last fact? Yep. Okay. Um. So I have a couple of facts, and I want you to tell me what you think these have in common. Okay. I think I can do that. You ready? I mean, I can tell you what I think. On this date in 1998, Elton John became Sir Elton John. Okay. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II. On what date? On this date. Oh. I want you to guess the date. I'm okay. sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, so that's what they have in common is I want you to guess the date. I don't want you to guess the date. I understand that. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, okay, on this date, 
T- like today's date, tomorrow's? What <laughs> All right. date? Gotcha. Guess right. McGee. Okay. In 1993, okay. on this date, okay. Eric Clapton won big at the Grammys, taking three awards for Tears in Heaven and two more for his album Unplugged with Best Rock Song. We talked about this before. Oh, yeah. L- the acoustic cover of Layla beating out Layla. Smells Like Teen Spirit. N- naturally. Yep. Okay. In 1992, on this date, balloting begins to decide the design on the new Elvis stamp. The choice is between a fit 50s Elvis or a more plump 70s one. Young Elvis wins in a landslide. I would imagine. I had one of these stamps. Yeah. The end. Well, Um, what'd you do with it? I don't remember. Probably mailed it to someone. And then let's see here. Give me one more interesting. I'm guessing the date, huh? Oh. Oh, this was something I... Ooh. I think we can talk about this next week. I forget when it came out. But after EMI, the music publisher, refused to let DJ Danger Mouse release the Grey album, which is a mashup of Jay-Z's Black album with samples from the Beatles' White album, he made it available for download for free on his website for one day. On this day? On this date. And this is in 2004. So this is 2004. Like... Um, LimeWire and Napster are in full swing. So the fact that he made it available for one day, it, it like, it went like bonfire. It was crazy. I imagine. Um, and we're going to talk about the gray album because it's, it really is a very interesting, like music thing that happened. So can you guess what day that was? I'll give you one more clue. Okay. It's your birthday. Oh, oi, mate. <laughs> uh, Elton John says, happy birthday. February 24th. Yeah, happy birthday, Stephen. Hey, thanks. You're welcome. Cheers, mate. That was good. Yeah. I was going to guess that. Yeah. Were you Were you really? No. Oh, well, happy birthday. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. It's good to be born. Um, enough about you. Okay. Life inspired by world-famous Disney placemaking. Did, oh, we should pretend we're sponsored again, like we did with Dr. Pepper Green. Oh. Story living by Disney. The Disney touch is at the heart of it all. These communities are envisioned as enriching enclaves conceived with the simple notion of bringing people together. Managed by Disney cast members who deliver world-class service and, of course, fun, no one else could bring to life such a vibrant mix of experiences and activities that will inspire new passions. Welcome to a place featuring world-renowned service that puts you at the center of everything. Please stand back. The monorail doors are closing. <laughs> wow, that was good. Can you imagine like just getting up? Here's the thing. Okay. The, this whole community, and, and we don't we have to stay here. I just think it's interesting. Um, is it's like everything is Disney. So you you move there and let's say you just have like, like a, your kid gets busted for possession you have a horrible fight with your wife and you're like, you're just going out to the car to try and go to a job that you hate. And then like Chip and Dale are like, Oh, good morning. (laughs) There's going to be like, like national news level atrocities happening in these places. Yeah. But are these people choosing to live there? Yeah. You, you have to like sign up. Well, so here's the thing is people that are choosing to live there aren't going to have a bad day. Oh, I think people that are choosing to live there are like one ex- one experience away from their entire worldview being shattered and just ending all of it for like mm. just making sure it's a bad time for everybody. Uh, 
Like you have to put. They're buying the whole city. Like I don't. Understand well, they're like this. developing this whole area like near Palm Springs, and it's not the only one. They're doing like some all over the country. This is scary. It is scary. It's weird, and it's. <laughs> oh God. Anyways, that's enough about this. Okay. What's our? Uh, I guess speaking oh. about Disney, and your oh. last fact with. Oh. See, it was funny because I was just going to say, like, if I wasn't sure if you were done or not, but I was going to say, I bet people right now are thinking, oh, these guys are going to talk about Disney songs. Maybe. Because it makes sense. It would. But we're not. Or maybe we are. Maybe. Maybe we are. I have a question for you. What's your question? Does movie need song? (laughs) (laughs) Like, does it? Does movie need song? That's our topic today. We were. (laughs) This is good. This is how you know, like, we really, we put the time in mm-hmm. for this because we will do Google searches for, like, conversation topics. Absolutely. Yeah. And Stephen found a list that is one of the one of the greatest things ever. And one of the questions was just, does movie need song? Yeah. And so it had to be a topic that we bring to we you. We had to make it a topic. So it is. So, so, so in conversation, expanding on does movie need song a little bit, we had the thought of let's talk about the impact that music has on the big screen mm-hmm. or the little screen, whatever screen you watch, mm-hmm. um, but mostly movies. And so we got to thinking and saying, hey, like let's take a journey through the cinematic world mm-hmm. uh, with someone who knows, I don't know why I'm pointing to you, you know who you are and you're right here. <laughs> you're right no here. one else is watching. Um, <laughs> someone, you know, someone who has a love for music and also for cinematic adventure. So this is good. Cinematic adventure. Is that appropriate? Can I say that? Is yeah, that I don't care. Yeah, good. That's good. Um, so I was talking a little bit. I, I approached this a couple of different ways. I was thinking, okay, let me think about, like, let me go down the list of all the soundtracks that are, you know, famous soundtracks and say, oh, what's the best soundtrack or, mm-hmm. to a movie or, or what's, you know, what's what? And I, I abandoned that very quickly because sitting here right now, now, Excluding musicals, in my opinion, because musicals, like, yes, musical need song, right? Like, it musical do need song. It's yes. not a musical if it doesn't have music. Yeah. So I didn't, I, and when I was looking at soundtracks, a lot of them were musicals, a lot of them were, you know, that type of thing. So, like, Grease and Sound of Music and sure. like that stuff, those are musicals. So, yeah, they would not be the same if they weren't having music. Um, so then I started thinking about more famous movies and songs that were like iconic. And when you think, when you hear the song, you think of that movie instantly. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the full soundtrack. Um, so that's how I kind of approached like thinking about it. And then I was listening, and then I was thinking, I was watching a movie and I was thinking, if this movie didn't have any music, like, would I still enjoy it or would it suck? Mm-hmm. You know, and so I guess I'll ask you a qu- the question of: Do you think that there are movies out there that could not have any music in them, or if you take the music out of a movie that you can think of, do you think the movie would still be the same quality-wise? So, some mu- movie you like that has music in it, mm-hmm. take that music out. Do you like the movie as much? No, and Why? because I think well. I think in order to talk about this, we need to talk about the relationship that music has had 
with motion pictures and I don't, they've, they've never been, uh, like separate. It's, and I don't, I can't think of any movies that don't at least have some type of scoring or a score to it. And so what I mean by that is, is typically you may have, um, musical things happening that might not sound like what we, we would consider a song, um, but there's still, you know, musical elements that are driving the visuals or mm-hmm. that are supporting the visuals. And so much so that like there was music with movies before there was talking in movies. Yes. So I actually think that it's it's much more reasonable to say would a, could you if you were going to remove something audio related from a movie and still have the movie be impactful by any standard i think you could it's actually much more reasonable to say you're going to remove any of the vocals but but really lean in on the music and it could be just as good if not the original vision or even better because then you're forced to tell a visual story and your characters like people have to see what your characters are feeling not be told what they're feeling yeah and I think music helps you empathize with a character more than even hearing what they're saying. Yeah. Um, so no, I don't think that you can take the music out of a movie and have it still be like if you're talking like a good movie. I'm just talking any yeah any movie. Yeah, I don't think you could take the music out of it and have it be good. And and to a certain extent, I think that there's very few like really good movies that even if you changed the music it would be as good interesting like because i think that for the for the really like timeless classic top movies i think it's that that perfect mixture of storytelling um direction i'm gonna say visuals because there's some of the top movies are animated like a toy story yeah oh yeah of course if so up until, because Toy Story was still Pixar, Disney hadn't bought them yet. Right. But I, but I think at the time, Phil Collins was doing a lot of the Disney stuff in those like late '90s Disney yeah. movies. Tarzan and yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff. That was all Phil Collins. Yeah. If you took Phil Collins and had him do the music for Toy Story instead of Randy Newman, the movie is not like I'm pretty sure Toy Story is like one of the top rated movies of all time. I would agree with that. And like Randy Newman's. Just his whole deal is yeah. perfect for like the whimsical Toy Story, but also there's this like really kind of dark undertone. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, right. It sure is. And like you, you don't get that. So like Phil Collins, fantastic composer, did Absolutely. a lot of great stuff for yeah. for movies. But even just changing, like I don't think that the that the composer or the artist composing something for a movie is even interchangeable. So all of that to very long-windedly say, not only do I think that you can't take music out of a movie and have it still be good, I think that when you think about whatever this means to you, when you think about movies that were impactful or that you that were that you consider good, I don't even think you can change the composers of those and have it still be the same influence on you. That's so funny that you say that. So you said a lot, which, and I, I love your take on it because I. So my brain is going in a million different directions right now. Um, 
but it's easiest to grasp the last thing you said. So sure. I'm going to go with that. So there's a woman, Karen Rockman or Rackman. Oh, okay. Whatever. One of those like CHT names. Exactly. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Uh, so she is a music supervisor for film mm-hmm. production. And so I, I read a lot about her and I'm not going to go down like a Karen Rackman story here, but, <clears throat> but I am. So I read a lot about her and her job and you saying that, okay, if you take Phil Collins and put him into Toy Story, it's not going to be the same. So a lot of what a music supervisor's role is in cinema production is finding the right artist or composer or whatever to produce the right music for in the scene or for the the cast of the movie. And she talks a little bit about like, and she's done so sorry, just to give you a little bit of her resume, if you will, she's been on, um, she was, did the music for Pulp Fiction, Reality Bites, Moulin Rouge, Boogie Nights, Clueless, like, so not just like secondhand movies. Like, So she wasn't the composer, no. but she supervised Almost like a casting director. Like selecting the music for the songs and making suggestions to the producers to say, this is the song. Basically, the producer says, hey, I'm writing this movie. Mm -hmm. Get me music. Mm -hmm. You know, and she she was talking a lot about some producers would say, I want this artist. And it was her job to go get that artist, whether they wanted to do it or not. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she talks about is um, in Reality Bites... There's a scene where they're sing. There's there's a couple. They're singing in a car, and it's um, "Baby I Love Your Way" by Peter Frampton. Mm-hmm. And but Peter, Fr- she was going back and forth with Peter Frampton, and like he was like, "Yeah, okay, you can use it." And the producer of that movie didn't want to use that version. They used a reggae version of "Baby I Love Your Way." And she said that it was one of the most horrific things that she's ever experienced in her career because it was the same song, but it was a completely different feel. Mm -hmm. And it ruined the scene Mm -hmm. from a musical standpoint in her mind. Mm -hmm. And so, like, that's the Phil Collins, Randy Newman thing. And that's so, it's just crazy how much detail goes into every little thing. Yeah. And how much it can really change the whole feeling of a scene or a movie. No, it's, 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 um, there's an interesting experiment and I think you can find this video on the internet. Um, but we like, we receive so much information through sound and we really don't even recognize it most of the time until it's made clear. And what I mean by that is you can be actually, people are probably more aware of it now especially over the past couple of years with everybody being on video calls or Zoom yeah. calls all the time. But we are, as as viewers of media, and this is across the board, we are much more forgiving of problems with video if the audio is still good than we are problems with audio even if the video is perfect. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I never realized, like, I never realized like that. You can be, you could be in a theater, like... You could have paid $27 to go watch the latest Marvel movie. And if there's something wrong where whatever it's, it's pixelated cause it's all digital. Now there's no film like something screws up, but 
the audio is untouched, you're, you're more likely to be somewhat okay with it than if in the middle of, you know, the Falcon's big speech, the audio just cuts out. Even if you can see everything, even if it's an action scene, we get very uncomfortable very quickly when we can't hear things. That's amazing. And so it's, that's why I think like there most in my opinion and if, and in a lot of people's opinion, like good audio is way more important than good video. I, oh, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And yeah. I think about, you said work. Like I think about being on video calls yeah. and people are frozen the entire time. Doesn't matter. I don't care if I can hear you. Like right. just take yourself, because it's a phone call. Yep. But if I can't hear you and I can see you perfectly, but your voice is choppy, I'm I'm just going to hang up. I'm yeah. leaving the meeting. Or like most, like a lot of people don't even go on camera at all. That doesn't matter. Fine, right. Um, wow, it's so interesting. Yeah, and what's almost worse than audio just dropping out altogether is the choppy like it, it and that it and but you you agree right and yeah, it's like no i don't agree to anything yeah. i don't know what you said <laughs> <laughs> just so mad yeah wow that's so cool yeah. i was so going back to like the the movie aspect of it and and thinking about i don't know we were in we were in bed the other night and we were watching not not us no, that's true. <laughs> that's true. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, my lovely wife and I. There we go. Uh, how about the bears, huh? Uh, oh, the bears. Yeah, how about the bears? Hell of a team. Hell of a team. Those aren't two pillows. Um, gosh. So me and my wife were in bed the other night. It's a better way to start a sentence. It's much better. And we were just, we, it was like one of those nights where we had nothing planned. It was like 7.30. We put the kids to bed and we were like, yeah, we're done. Like bedtime. I threw a movie on, just threw the TV on and, and Step Brothers was on. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, not a good movie, but probably the best movie I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, you know. And I knew that we were going to be talking about this music song movie thing. And <laughs> so I was paying close attention to the music in Step Brothers. Can you name me a song on the Step Brothers soundtrack? Um, oh, what's he sing at the end? I can't remember. At the Catalina wine mixer? Yeah. Yeah. Right. You can't remember. Well, and I but I'm pretty sure it's all it's all songs. Right? What do you like it's all like like um real songs? Yes. Yeah. 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 I couldn't tell you one of them. Oh, okay. But this is my point, right? So I think a movie like that, they're on the way, the 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 younger, bro, the whatever, Brennan's brother is like on the way with his family and they're singing in the car and they're like all professional singers. And it's like that scene is awesome because it shows you how much this family sucks, right? Yep. Like, so you take that scene out. Okay, that's a, that's a, that's an iconic scene in that movie. You take some of the other music out or even you change the music, I don't think it impacts that particular movie that much. I didn't oh, get a I see what you're saying. I didn't yeah. get a feeling that No, wait, you can't have stepbrothers without all that music because right. I couldn't tell you one song that's in that thing. Yep. Now, if Jack and Rose are at the front of the Titanic and my heart will go on isn't playing, like, no no no, no. That is the song for that scene. Yep. 
no other song can take that place. So I think, much like how we talked about I Will Always Love You, I think that oh, was... Thanks, yeah, you're welcome. Um, we'll chat more when we're in bed later. <laughs> I think I think Celine Dion did original music for that movie. Absolutely. She yeah. Did. And so there's... Yes. Oh my gosh, this is a whole other topic is like composing a score versus just picking good songs. Picking good songs is very important and you brought up did you bring up Pulp Fiction yeah. earlier? Yep. Karen, like Karen Rockman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a movie where now first of all Tarantino is um is very very like OCD about his his audio and his score and everything. Mm-hmm. It matters to him as a director. And so having Stephen Wright as the DJ. Oh, I can't remember the name of the station. Um, I want to say it's like K Billy. You're listening to K Billy's Super Seventies f- throwback or something, and it's all like seventies songs that are through it. Um, and uh, it's a very intentional choice because Pulp Fiction. Oh no, no, I'm thinking. Shoot, I'm thinking of Reservoir Dogs. Thinking of Reservoir Dogs, I got them mixed up. Um, Easy to do. Nah, not really. But anyways, no. I'm going to go with another Tarantino film. Good. Where it still works because it's talking about using popular songs in a movie. Yeah. Something like Step Brothers. It's like, okay, they, they use songs. And this is happening more and more with all the nostalgia grab movies where it's like, hey, remember this song? Like. Yeah. Like if you do a movie from the '90s, it's like it's gonna have no doubt in it, yeah. or Harvey Danger, like Flagpole Sitter, or yeah. something like that, right? Yeah. But with when when it's an intentional, I think that there's a difference between just having good songs that fit a scene. It's still important, yeah. Which we'll get into when they don't fit. It's a problem. Yeah. But to your point, it's not lasting, whereas in something like Reservoir Dogs, where it's meant to kind of mirror the old um, like crime uh, drama, like gangster yeah. police movies of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, mostly 70s. And so that's why that, even though it takes place in quote-unquote modern day, it's using the backdrop of this throwback to 70s weekend and there's a reason why you're hearing all these songs because it's on the radio in the cars and it's playing yeah, in the diner. That's... And it's and it's meant to serve the narrative of this, this jewel heist gone wrong. And when Tarantino made Reservoir Dogs in the mid-90s, I'm pretty sure, like heist movies weren't really a thing anymore. Because I didn't think about that, yeah. I we guess. didn't, like, it, we were still probably 10 years away from Ocean's Eleven, the remake of Ocean's Eleven with George Clooney and Brad Pitt and all that. Um, but wow, in like the true. 70s, like heist movies. That was all there was. Yeah, there was a ton of them. And so like that, even if you can't remember the songs, it you still remember like the feeling of it and because it it's in service to the greater story. Yeah. And that's it's just... not just, oh, Will Ferrell's beating up children, so let's play like a, a pop punk song or something. Right. You know what I mean? That's a good, yeah, that's a good point. And I think that that is true. Like it all ties back to the feeling of what you have, not necessarily the specific song, you know, because it's popular at that time. It's a good point. I think it's interesting. Like I've never thought about music in movies as much as I have in the last three weeks. Mm. 
you know, and it's been an interesting perspective now because it's like there are actually something you said earlier. There are 10 quote great films that have no music or scores in them. Really? And it, I was thinking about it, you know, saying, okay, well, what are there any movies that I've ever seen that haven't had any music in it? And they really weren't. Um, but do you have the list of the 10? I do have the list of the 10 and I would be happy to share it. So the Blair Witch Project. Okay. Is one. And so they, I'm not going to read from the screen right now, but I read it a little bit earlier. And the gist of it is they went, they went back and forth a lot about adding music to it or not. And the general consensus was that that film I saw that movie mm-hmm. like a long time ago. It was 90, 99 it came we out. We just rewatched it Did you? With, with Ryan. Yeah. Was it as scary as it was in 99 as it is now? No. No. Yeah, of course not. Because we're older, I think, probably. Well, we're older. And so Ryan is bad. <laughs> Ryan's been getting into uh, like scary movies lately. Mm. And so we've watched like Paranormal Activity, which the the sequels aside, I think Paranormal Activity took like the foundation that Blair Witch laid and just took it to a new level. Okay. I, 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 that paranormal activity still freaks me out. Yeah. Watching Blair Witch, it's like, man, okay. Yeah. yeah like, cool. You, yeah. Like you really have to suspend the suspension of disbelief, which is what you have to do in order to enjoy a movie. It's like a, a psychological phrase or term. Okay. Like you have to suspend your disbelief in something. Oh. Like, you know that that Superman isn't real. Yeah. Like nobody can fly through the air and, and like pick up the moon. So you have to be willing to suspend your disbelief in that in order to enjoy it. That makes sense. Yep. But anyways, going back to Blair Witch. Yeah. Um, that movie absolutely would not have worked with music in it unless it was done in the context of the show. So if they were out there and one of them happened to have a portable radio. Sure. And it was like, oh, turn that off. We heard something. Yeah. But I I like the decision to not score it because it's literally people outside with a camera. And that's what they're saying. Is like, no, we want the, the, the whole experience of that movie is being immersed as if you are out in the woods with a camera and without a radio. Like, and that's it. What's extra cool about that movie it's geez, I'm gonna nerd out this whole. This episode's gonna be four hours long. It can't be. <laughs> well, it can be. Well, it could be. <laughs> but they're so. First of all, they're filming on film. They do have a a uh, a mini DV camera that still uses cassettes. But the primary camera they're using, they talk about how they rented it, and it's a film camera. And most film cameras, and even still today, I think there's a couple of cinema cameras that don't record audio natively. And so that's what slating is when you see that checkerboard thing that yep. people snap in front of a, that's so you can line up the audio and video of a scene. So there you go. Never knew that. Um, so they talk about how there's the one kid that's that's working the camera, yep. but then the other guy is the audio guy and he's got the, the pack. waste pack yeah. with the pack and the boom mic and everything. And so even within the context of what they're doing, having a music track would make no sense. Yeah. So uh, interesting. I, so it's I want to hear more on this list, and I promise I won't spend twenty minutes on each one. No, I don't think you've ever heard of this one. Maybe you have though. Rope. Nope. Nineteen forty-eight. Alfred Hitchcock. Really? Rope. Hitchcock did a movie without music. So I'll read this briefly because I never heard of it and didn't spend any time on it. But um, yeah, it masters the art of suspense, yet it manages to do it without the aid of music. 
Um, so it's a single location Manhattan penthouse apartment for the whole movie creates a strangling atmosphere as Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan conceal their horrific crime from a group of dinner guests. So it's like, I want to see this now. I love Hitchcock. I want to see it too, but there's no music in it. Um, M, this was a 1931 movie. Yeah, so man. we'll skip that. The Wind Will Carry Us, 1999. So uh, I don't know anything about it, but this has no music. And the whole idea behind it is it immerses you in the sounds of the village that this takes place in. So it's more of an immersive experience like the Blair Witch is around bringing just the reality of where the movie is taking place Mm -hmm. to without trying to grab your emotions with mm-hmm. music. Dog Day Afternoon, 1975. Ah. Two-hour film in a bank. Mm-hmm. Bank robbery, right? Yes. Yeah. No music. Is that Pacino? That is Pacino. Wow. Look at you. Yeah. You want to play the blockbuster game? <laughs> um, I would destroy you at that game. I know. <laughs> Stay tuned next week for Justin and Steven play We're the blockbuster live game. stream playing the blockbuster hey. game. The Birds, nineteen sixty three. Um, so this is Alfred Hitchcock. Now, yeah, 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 yeah. Now that you mention it, yep. Yeah. So, um, yep. No music. No country for old men. No music at all, or no score. And I know that you probably don't have that. Hold on. feel like there were at least but again it could have been like like a car radio technically carter burwell provided the music for no country for old men but you'll be darned if you try to pick up on any light ambient hums are present in some spots but they've been tuned down to the 60 hertz frequency of a refrigerator yeah much more noticeable is the movie's lack of traditional western theme whatever no soundtrack no scores yeah 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 Winter Light, 1963. Um, no music at all. Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, 2011. Don't know that one. Me neither. Network, 1976. I don't know that one either. It's a fictional television network with low ratings. So this taste-based takes place most, mostly in a recording studio for a, a network TV. Um, and there is no score. There is a brief moment of staticky radio music. Um, but there is no scores, no soundtrack. So there's 10 movies. So I think the I think there's two things. One, what we talked about at the outset still holds true because the question was if there's a movie if you take the music out is it still good so i think what we talked about there still stands if a movie has music and you take it out no it's not going to be as good two it's really hard to make a good movie with no music yeah like it's only been done 10 times and i've heard of like two of those doesn't mean they're not good i've heard of three of them but yeah. but yes exactly well and and, and here's the thing is first, I think that 
the sound design in those movies is very good. Yeah. Like the sound design in Blair Witch, it feels like you're in the woods. Yeah. And you're or you're on a city street right. or when they're doing the interviews and stuff and it and it sounds very intentionally like kind of low quality yeah. man on the street interview or walking through the woods. So the sound design's still important. And the lack of a soundtrack I'm actually still going to make my statement. The soundtrack supports the visuals. So the lack of one in these cases is what is needed to support the visuals. Because like we talked about, if there was music in the Blair Witch, it would not work. Right. I don't think there's much music in Paranormal Activity, now that I think about it. I think it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think that there's any score in that movie. I don't know. We just watched it a few weeks ago. I, I don't. Yeah. I could be misremembering, but yeah, it's, it's like, okay, you know what? And here's a really good example of why. Okay. 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 So we talked about Hitchcock, who is one of my favorite directors of all time. Um, and he's done a lot, a lot of very good music, um, and scores like North by Northwest is fantastic. Rear window. The music is fantastic. Vertigo. The music is like it adds to the dizziness of the scenes when he's like hanging off the cliff and stuff like that. And then especially Psycho. The music in Psycho is phenomenal. So much so that Buster Rhymes sampled it for Gimme Some Mo. Oh, it's great. It's so good. Um, <laughs> I love how much you love this stuff. Oh, I love it. Um, so it's it's interesting to be reminded of the times when like Hitchcock was just such a boss where he was like, well, now I'm going to do it without music. Yeah. Like, exactly. <laughs> it's just, so. Yeah, forget about it. Yeah. Um, where the hell was I going with any uh, of this? Ah, nobody knows. Oh, so but scary. So horror movies. Yeah. The, one of the things that I can't stand, I love a good thriller. I like a scary movie. But I, but I don't, <laughs> yeah. But I don't like movies that are just like, like 90 minutes of jump scares. Oh yeah, no. because it's cheap. Like it's it's a cheap way to, okay, like something pops out and there's that musical sting, like the right yeah. and whatever. It's like okay, you did it. So you but, don't like like scary movie. So scary movie is actually <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Scary, <laughs> scary movie one and two are two of the greatest movies of all time. I don't know, and then which one did they do? War of the Worlds. I think that was three. Uh, they, that's the one where they have the guy. He's, he's like. Hey, that's a good look for you. What? Pregnant? I'm not pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but a lot of modern, so the the remake of the It movies. Yep. I'm not going to say that the original It was cinematic masterpiece. Like, I think the new ones were probably better movies than the original. Mm. But the music gives away everything. Like, so there's a scene when the kid's going into the basement and the, and it's all flooded and Georgie, like he's seeing like the visions and like, and like the music gives away what's going to happen because like every step of them coming forward, there's like this big musical sting and like every single scene when something's about to happen, there's this big musical swell, like even before it happens. And so one of the things I like about a, paranormal activity a Blair Witch or something yeah. like that is and in general I appreciate 
when the score knows when to get out of the way. And let tension build, yeah. and just have something in No Country for Old Men. So I agree. Obviously, there's no traditional soundtrack, but still, those low resonating tones add to the tension and the yeah. the anxiety and the suspense of what's happening. Yeah, it's interesting. That's where you talk about the mu- the, the design of the yeah music. sound design yeah sound design coming into play and being so important. So. I mean, I consider sound design everything from sound effects to the score, like basically anything you hear. I don't know if that's really the definition of it. Yeah, but I guess um, you. It's, I this mean, no is one's one of gonna, those. This no is one of those things when we talked about the Grammys, how there's 9,000 right. um, categories. Same with the Oscars. There's like 500 sound-related categories. And it's like, best person that raises volume, best person that lowers volume. Apparently, it's a British guy yeah. that decides these. No, th- that's true. That's true. You know, and I think, I think too, like about, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to say right now, but <laughs> like I think about movies that, like Top Gun. Mm-hmm. I think about Top Gun, right? And like the Danger Zone. Yeah. Like what a perfectly placed song for that movie, right? Mm-hmm. So it just, I think, I guess what I'm saying to sum up my thoughts is that I have so very much underestimated the importance and the detail that goes into someone like a Karen Rockman's job as a, and, and others, right. That are involved in picking and placing songs, music. Sometimes you don't hear the whole song. You only hear part of the song. So like what part of the song is going to play in this moment? Like the intro to Top Gun, the, the, the actual Top Gun theme song, which won a Grammy. Mm-hmm. Like all that stuff doesn't, I, I guess I've underestimated the impact that it has in your viewing experience. So yeah, um, I know you wanted to talk about times where it didn't work or whatever, but not so my, much when it doesn't work, but yeah, I just, I think like to answer our question at the onset is, you know, I think that music plays a very integral part in movie. And so I would say, yes, movie does need song movie does need song i think that that's the answer to the question um movie movie does need song there's um so there's a couple of things that i want to go over um that i'm having a hard time finding the list that i want okay in the meantime do you have do you have a favorite soundtrack to a movie like outside of a musical do you have a soundtrack that you like go to and say, this is my favorite soundtrack? Or, wow, what a great soundtrack. Have you seen so many soundtracks? Um, I don't really listen to soundtracks too much outside of movies. I think that the, the soundtrack to... Uh, the movie Ford versus Ferrari is very good. Yes, it is. Very good. When he's at Daytona and Ken Miles is like basically needs to win in order to race at Le Mans, which that whole scene was they they definitely like added a little bit of schmaltz for Hollywood. Like Ken Miles won that by a landslide. Like it wasn't it was not close. It wasn't close? Oh, no. Okay. But man, when he when Matt Damon goes out there, Matt Damon and like does like the oh push it. And he goes, oh, yeah, and the horns come in like that. Ba-na-na. Oh, gets me every time. Yeah. 
So much so that I actually thought that that was like a song. I've tried to find just that song. And I don't think it's, I haven't checked in a while, but it wasn't on the soundtrack for like in Spotify or anything for the movie. So, and that's another thing too, is there are musical moments in movies that, that aren't even really like a full song. Right. Of course. Um, But it fits in so well. So I really love that. I love the, um, the score for the 89 Batman. So good. It's like grabs. It's like Forget about it. I love it. And and I think that honestly, I think it's part of the reason why it's some people's favorite Batman still, even though it's forty years old almost at this point. Like or thirty Easy there, killer. (laughs) Jeez Louise. Happy birthday. Hey. Um Wow. But like like the Christopher Nolan Batman, like the like the scores were fine. Sure. Um, I've not seen the newest one, but I think it's kind of like, from what I've heard, it's kind of like an emo angsty soundtrack. I could be wrong on that, but like, man, Elfman just knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Danny Elfman with that. Yeah. And so this was something kind of interesting that I wanted to talk about is like the, the, the modern composer. Okay. Right. So I'm going to do a very quick rundown of kind of the history of the relationship of music to cinema. Okay. And it's broken down into a handful of eras, typically. So you have the silent film era, which was roughly the 1890s to like the late 1920s. And this was, obviously, the films themselves didn't have any music. music. Hmm. Um, and Or much audio at all. And so every theater either would play an accompanying um, phonograph. Oh. Like, so they'd have to start the movie and, like, a record at the same time. Or they would literally have a local, like, orchestra or somebody playing along. That's so cool. It is cool. And so when you think about it, like, so you've got Charlie Chaplin films that are playing in Boston and Los Angeles that if they had a local orchestra, sounded different. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, and it, and it, there's this whole thing. Oh, that's like, wild. Yeah, so like the local, and even some of it was just an organ, like the do 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 right? Or they'd have like a 10-piece orchestra or whatever that would play along with the movie, and the conductors would kind of improvise along with the movie. That is so cool. It's crazy. That's like live art. Yeah, it's nuts. And then you have to play it like four times a day, every Cause, day. Because the movie's not live art already. It's true. It's well, not it's, it's not live. It's not. That'd be a play. So then after the silent era, <laughs> you have what is called the golden age, oh, which is yes. the 30s through the 50s. We've all heard of the golden age. There's some really interesting things that happened in this time period. So the first of all, in 1929, um, the it was the ability to synchronize music with celluloid film. Film was invented. And so now a movie studio can prevent like it sounding different in Boston and Los Angeles. Like here's the movie with the music. So there's still a lot of silent films because recording vocals on set was still really tough. Um, 
But once you get into the 30s, especially through the 50s, you have a couple of people that really start to set the tone and influence uh, scores in movies that you still hear today. And so there's two big names. There's Max Steiner and Enrique Korngold. I'm probably saying that wrong. He's German. Or I'm sorry, Austrian. Um, but Max Steiner is regarded as the father of like modern movie music. Really? Because he... I'm actually going to read this because I just learned this today. He uses a, he ex, makes extensive use of Le Motif in his 1933 score for King Kong. So the original King Kong movie. Yep. Um, and what it is, so the, the concept of Le Motif, which was created by German operatic composer Richard Wagner, um, Le Motif is a technique where specific instruments or themes are applied to a specific character. So there is a King Kong theme and it's a series of three or four notes that when King Kong either first appears or when he's climbing the Empire State Building, though that little bit of music is incorporated into the score. The score. And so you start to relate characters to music. Whoa. And up until then that, it didn't it was only happening in like opera. That's crazy. Right. And that's like super common nowadays. Like and you think about the Avengers, like oh. all of the original Avengers have their own score. Oh, um, yeah, okay, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, so like Even Hawkeye? I don't know if may well, maybe. I don't know. Huh. He had a TV show. He had a bad Snowmobile accident or snow, <laughs> snow plow. snowplow accident, whatever it is. I saw like. <laughs> it's not funny. It's, it's hilarious. No, it's not. Where it's like Avengers assemble and it's oh, like, God. it's all the Avengers beating up a snowplow. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. But like, so Captain America, and I we talked about this before, but the, Never heard the, of the scene in Infinity War. Oh, yeah. When he shows when up he in shows the subway up, yeah. and it's just. I can see the credits. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, but like that's that's his his theme. That's Captain America, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so this idea of le motif, which I might be saying wrong, I don't care. Like Max Steiner was one of the first ones to apply that to film. I'm glad he did that because so am I. Like it happens, it ha- and it happens more than we know. Where, like, even think about um. Like, like, like a show like Seinfeld, and I know that this isn't exactly the same, but like, oh god, oh that, you don't have your thing, so that's good. That synth riff, <laughs> like it's so tied to Seinfeld mm. that if you hear even something that sounds close, you can play it on a different instrument, and it's Seinfeld, hundred percent. So that whole concept, right? And then Heinrich Heinrich Korngold could be saying that wrong. He really started to compose a lot of the big, like, epic soundtracks. So he did the original Robin Hood, which was 1938. Oh, wow. And a movie called The Seahawk, which I had never heard of. But The Seahawk came out in 1940. And then there's a little composer, I don't know if you've heard of him, named John Williams. John Williams. Hmm. Can't say that I have. Star Trek. uh, Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, right. 
Um, Jurassic Park, I think. I actually knew who that was. Okay. So listen to this little bit of music from the Seahawk and think about Star Wars as we listen to it. Like, it sounds like the Rebels just won. Right. Like, and so you have these, like, these composers that are pulling influences from classical music in the early 1930s to 50s that are influencing composers 30 to 40 years later. That's nuts. And so one of the reasons why a lot of people think that that Spielberg and Williams like did so well with all their big blockbusters like Jurassic Park and all that is because Spielberg creates movies that feel like old time cinema, but mix in current technologies. Like they feel like these big epic tales like Indiana Jones came out in the eighties, but it feels like you're watching a movie from like 1950 or something. Right. Or night or like, Honestly, A Christmas Story is another good example of this. It's a great movie that came out in the '80s, but you feel like you're watching something absolutely, that was filmed in the '50s. Right, of course, and the soundtrack to that absolutely plays perfect. a role in it. Perfect, it's, and it's perfect. But but wow. but one of the reasons why, like those those Spielberg movies would not have done as well without Williams's scores, like no question. I believe that. Yeah. Um, wow. This yeah. is. I'm never gonna watch a movie again. It's crazy. It's almost it almost takes the fun out of it. <laughs> like it really does. Um the same way as So in the 50s you get into music starting to branch out of the orchestral score um and you have two important changes. One, a streetcar named Desire. Oh yeah. which was the Marlon Brando yeah. I could have been a contender. Um featured a <laughs> like a jazz score. What? I don't know. When you did that, all I heard was, Ma, I want to be a dancer. Ma, I want to be a dancer. Oh, what the hell was that? What were we talking we're about? We were talking about Bruce Springsteen going over <laughs> out of lasagna or something. I don't remember. I don't oh remember either. God. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, sorry. Keep going. But it was the first major motion picture that took a step away from the traditionally European-sounding scores. Because the 30s wow. through the 50s, was classical music that was inspired by all these German Austrian composers. Okay, yeah. You know. And so Streetcar comes in and now it's a very American like jazz is very American. More jazz, yeah. yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So that's the first kind of like move away from that. And then 1952 and this goes back to all the way up to 1993 was Whitney Houston you talked about, I think. Oh yeah, 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 bodyguard. Um 1952 there was a movie called High Noon which featured the song, Oh My Darling. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh My Darling Clementine? Yes. Okay. Like, I, I thought that that was literally a song that, like, cowboys sang like, yeah. in the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> no, it tur- turns out it's 1952. Um, and it was the first time that the that a, that a song was used for... Um, commercial promotion of a film. Oh. So they would play the song as like either a trailer or an advertisement for the film. And following the success of Oh My Darling, studios began asking composers to write original songs for their films that could also be used for promotional purposes via the radio. Wow. 
So that literally that all started in 52. Yeah. So this whole concept of, of something like a My Heart Will Go On yeah. was a huge music success as well as Titanic being like the biggest movie at all, of all time until Cameron broke his own record with Avatar. And um, so Oh My Darling was played on the radio. And it was people were like, oh, that's from that movie High Noon. And then nobody ever talked about High Noon again. But like, oh, my darling. Oh, my darling. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my darling. It's crazy. Wow. Um, in the 50s, still in the 50s, 1954, okay. um, the whole, so up until this point, the studios created the music for the most part. They owned the whole process. And so these composers that I talked about already worked for a studio. Okay. In 1954, because of various like financial region, reasons, studios started dissolving. And so you have typically your studios become more um, the actual production of a movie. But this is when you, you start to get like um, like actors are no longer no, – actors no longer work for studios. They're independent. Yeah, and so you have like the um, the Screen Actors Guild and stuff sure. like that, right? Um, writers are no longer forced to work for a specific studio; they can write and sell to other things. And you have like writers' unions. Um, the composers that were from these studios can go out and freelance, but unlike certain, like a conductor. So somebody that's actually conducting a band or an actual instrumentalist, composers did not belong to the American Federation of Musicians. So composers Mm -hmm. through like the 60s and into the 80s ended up getting absolutely borked in contract negotiations because they had no union to back them up. They had no one to back them up. Yeah. And so if there was a composer, it was like, oh yeah, you know, if you want me, you got to pay. And they're like, no. We're going to do literally others. anything else. Yeah, right. exactly. Wow. So that, like that had more lasting impact. That was still later. the 80s though? That was so 1954. Then, no, but till the 80s you said? Like up until the I don't 80s? know exactly when, okay, okay, but okay. I do know that they they have ended up unionizing and things like that. So why, Like why? It why was, are they not because they're not I don't know. I yeah, I haven't dug weird. any more into it. Um okay. so I, don't I won't ask any more questions. It. But in the 60s you see more pop music popping up, sure. huh. more well, jazz, and then you have this interesting little genre of westerns. So, whoops, <laughs> cheers. So because of the whole studio um, disillusion, you have more pop music being used. So we've already talked about that, yeah. where you're using established songs in movies. Because in many cases, it's cheaper to license a song than it is to get somebody to compose music. That makes sense, yeah. Um. Like, for example, The Graduate, which was um, Graduate. Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman, yeah. That score is comprised almost entirely of licensed songs. And it was one of the first movies, one of the first real big hit movies that was almost exclusively pre-recorded content that they licensed for the movie. Okay. And uh, Mrs. Robinson, the song that Simon and Garfunkel recorded, they did create for that movie but it was also kind of like a weird licensing arrangement where they still got oh. royalties from okay. playing it on the radio. Oh, so it's wow. more of that creating it for a movie. And then you have, um, so your jazz composers start to pop up. Um, 
most notably Henry Man- Mancini, which Henry Mancini is phenomenal. He did the music for all the Pink Panther films. Oh, yeah. Um, you love those films, don't you? I do. I'm a yeah. big fan. And then Lalo Schifrin did Mission Impossible. Right. Like that was a that was a jazz music score. Absolutely. It's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Um This is and, fascinating. Yeah. And then if you like music. And then they what they did though in the sixties is they kind of kept jazz relevant in movies because pop music was really starting to come into play. And then John Barry, who it's fine if you don't know him, he's a British composer who started composing symphonic jazz hybrid scores for a little fr- film franchise known as James Bond. Never heard of it. James Bond. Wow, really? Yeah. Like and it and it defined the spy genre. Yeah. Of this like kind of like jazzy like ooh, it's cool guy in the suit so you've it's crazy when you start to see how like, this is all tied together. Right, like going through this and then thinking about like the jazz being introduced and how jazzy James Bond, whoa, that's weird. Jazzy James Bond. <laughs> hey, it says jazzy James Bond. <laughs> I think that was Will Smith's DJ. Yeah, right? Like that's nuts, but it all makes sense now. And it's it's interesting to learn and to hear about the backstory to how this came to be mm-hmm. and who's behind the music. Because yeah. I've never thought, you said something earlier about like, the European orchestra type Like the classical music, music influence. Yeah. yeah, and then the American jazz aspect, and it's like, thinking about it regionally, mm-hmm. I've never done before. Yeah, it's weird. It's really weird. Like if you think about Star Wars, because once we start to get into the 70s, you start to get some of the synth work, which we talked about with yep, Dan. With Dan, yeah. Um, and like some of the greatest themes of all time, like it, okay, it wasn't the 70s, um, but you started to get the synth work of composers who started in the 70s, like the Terminator theme, which is just great. Yeah. Actually, T2 might be my favorite. When you were saying, like, what's your favorite? Oh, man. The score in T2 is fantastic. Terminator 2 might be my favorite movie. Really? It's up there. It's hard to say. It's like, what's your favorite song? I'll have to watch it. Yeah. Oh, so good. And you don't have to see any other Terminator. Like T1 is good. Terminator 1. Yeah. Oh, um, oh thank you for clarifying. I'm an idiot. <laughs> but like... I, lo- I, lo- I watched that whole realization. That was great. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Um, anyway. Oh, and the 80s was more since, and that's when... Um, um, Brad, F- Brad Fidel did the original, did the Terminator and all that. So, anyways, the 80s, you get more synth music, and then the 90s through now is it's basically anything goes. Anything, whatever. And it's very, you have less, like, kind of genre-defining, just go for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's like this is the second time I've done that. Yeah. And uh, I will happily give you some. Oh, oh that's plenty. It's probably too much. Why is your ice bigger than mine? <laughs> I finished my drink sooner. Um, went to a, a summer camp one time when I was <laughs> in high school. And it was in upstate New York. Ah. And the girl, there was, a, there was a girl that was working at the concession stand. Wow, wow. Yeah, exactly. 
and she was from like someplace south. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and so you, you go up and you order something, and the ice machine was broken <sighs> at that time. So I'd just be like, hey, you know, could I please? Could I please get a Coke? Womp, womp, womp. Ah, look at this. We're scoring the podcast. <laughs> Boy, the sound design in this podcast is fantastic. <laughs> type a type a type a type a. Like, <laughs> so Brought I, to you by Dr. Pepper Green. Yeah. <laughs> Disney, whatever. <laughs> Disney Stepford. Um, <laughs> but I remember going up to her, and it was myself and a couple friends, and I said, oh, you know, can we get a, can we get a Coke? She goes, I can give you Coke, but I can't give you any ass. Oh. And I literally said, I don't know what that means where you come from, but I don't want any of it in my Coke. <laughs> so in when you coke. said, why is, why is your ass so much bigger than mine? Yeah. Anyways. Hey, now. So I think. So that's where everything goes. Straight to your ass. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> ended abruptly. <laughs> oh, that's how it had to end. Fell down and I bumped my head. Somebody helped me up and asked me if I bumped my head. I said, yeah. So then they said, oh, so that means you're going you gonna to switch it on them. I said, yeah, flip mode. Flip mode is the greatest. You know, and as a shorty, I was always told that if I ain't going to be part of the greatest, I got to be the greatest myself. Come on, come on. <laughs>